Are you ready to make positive transformation happen for you? Today, you're going to hear how some of the most successful people in the world have made it happen. Hello, and welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership with Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. These successful people and Dr. Woolsey will share advice, insights, tips, and tricks designed to help you incite personal action. It's time to bring positive transformational leadership to your life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. Yes, you are listening to Transformational Energy Leadership, and I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. Hello and welcome. So during the show, I'll encourage you over the commercial breaks, go to my website, that's transformationalenergyleadership.com, where you can learn more about me and my business offerings. And of course, contact me. I love getting emails from all of you. And you can do that by sending one to mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. You can also find me on this platform, that's voiceamerica.com under the Empowerment Channel. And I'm on social media, LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm excited about today's show because we're focusing on Leadership in Times of Crisis. And joining me is Eric Minolti, who is he's one of the co-authors of the soon-to-be-released book. It's called Your It, colon, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And it's due out in June. Here's a little bit more about my guest. Eric serves as Associate Director for the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative and the Harvard T.H. Chan Program for Healthcare and Negotiation and Conflict Resolution. He's an instructor at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Eric is a contributing editor and columnist at Strategy Plus Business Magazine and has written for Harvard Business Review. And he is the co-author of the second edition of Renegotiation Healthcare, Resolving Conflict to Build Collaboration. So I'm going to stop right there. And Eric, welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership. Matthew, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm thrilled about this concept and let's dive right into it. Your book it's called Your It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And it's due out this coming June. And it just seems quite timely with what everything that's going on in the world right now. And I understand your book comes out of the work that you do with the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, that's NPLI. Tell us why and when NPLI began its work. Well, the NPLI was formed shortly after 9-11. Uh, when the federal government came to Harvard and asked us to put together a leadership program uh, to both help the components of the federal government work better together and then have the government, the federal government work with the states and local officials as well as with the private sector companies involved, nonprofit organizations, and the general public. Because there was a realization after 9-11 and we were in a more dangerous world and that in major adverse events, Leaders don't do their job well, people die. I mean, it's actually a public health risk. And so the government approached us, and we uh, launched just about 16 years ago, and we've been doing it ever since, and we were always grounded in trying to be very practical and actually solve the problems. So we are not here creating theory as much as we are creating a framework that is that incorporates a lot of theory and science with practical on-the-ground experience. So it's really... We want to help leaders do a better job in those times when it matters most. And that's what we need is the practical application piece of it. I know in your book you talk about this concept called swarm leadership. Tell us more about what you mean by swarm leadership. So it was a really interesting revelation to us. We were studying the Boston Marathon bombing response, and we had interviewed about 30 people, everywhere from the mayor and the governor down to frontline responders. 
uh, and talked about what had happened and the leadership lessons is the way we typically do our research, trying to distill general principles. And there was greater cooperation and collaboration through that response than we typically see when a lot of different agencies and organizations are involved. There was conflict, yes, but they were able to resolve it quickly, and people worked really, really well together. And through our interviews, we were, at one point we asked the special agent in charge from the FBI about a decision to keep the subways open or closed here on the day of the bombing. And we asked him what his role was in that decision, and he said, um, I, I wasn't in the room. We said, what do you mean you weren't in the room? That was a huge decision, and you were in charge. And he said, well, I was in charge of the investigation, but I wasn't in charge of the operation. So who, we asked, was in charge of the operation? And he thought for a moment, and he said, I guess no one. Hmm. And that was really puzzling to us. Now, technically, the governor was in charge. He was the senior political official. Uh, but our governor at the time, Deval Patrick, was someone who did not try and make operational decisions. He would very much come in, and we heard over and over again, would ask the various people involved, how can I be useful? What do you need me to do? And what it turned out was there was a group of leaders who, because they had trained and worked together for a number of years, had thought through these multi, uh, multi-organizational responses, were able to work very well as a group, as a collective and so you didn't have to someone be large and in charge, and there weren't the sharp elbows out we often see when people fight over jurisdiction or over their turf. They actually worked really well together. And we were trying to explain that, and I think because I happened to be an amateur bird watcher, I thought of this body of science of this swarm intelligence, and it's how non-human species engage in complex social behaviors. And it turns out they can do that because they have simple rules and social cues that everyone knows Everyone follows. Think of bees, of birds, of termites. These are species that do a lot of cooperative activity. And we went back and looked at the marathon response, and we found five behavioral principles that were common across this. First of all, there was unity of mission. Everyone was moving in the same direction. Secondly, there was great generosity of spirit and action. People were helping each other out. What do you need? How can I help? There were chains of command working within the individual organizations, and people were staying in their lanes. They were credible and competent in their lanes, and they stayed out of other people's lanes. That's really, really important whenever you have multiple silos within an organization or multiple organizations trying to work together. The fourth one was no ego, no blame, and that's really, really hard. I know a lot of these people we interviewed. I know them fairly well. There were no shrinking violets in the room, but they were able to modulate their behavior and keep their egos in check. And finally, and perhaps most important, there was a foundation of trust-based relationships they had built over years. So when we talk to organizations now about how to incorporate small leadership, we say start from the bottom up. Build trust, look at emotional intelligence and get people to control their egos and control who they blame. Get really good at what you do in your lane so you have confidence in the people who are in their other lanes. Be generous with each other, help each other out, create reciprocity. And then finally... Make sure you've got a clear mission. You're actually, you know what the goal is and the objective. And when you do that, you get swift, synchronous movement that makes you very agile, very adaptive, and able to meet the really big challenges. Mm-hmm. Yes, it takes the concepts, uh, concept of collective leadership or collaborative leadership, shared leadership, and it takes it to a different, a different level. And I like how you're talking about this form. 
one of the things we found oh, in the research was that there are lots of description of collective leadership and collaborative leadership. There's nothing on the behavioral piece. That's what we focused on with the swarm leadership as the addition to the, to the literature was what are the behaviors that make those structures work well? Mm-hmm. All right. Yes, and it makes a ton of sense. And, and I really agree with you in terms of there's that trust piece. That's the part when that's missing all those other pieces, it seems would be really compromised if you if you don't have that trust leader or that trust foundation. Absolutely. You, you know, yeah. And you also talk about this concept of meta leadership. And how is it different from, let's say, traditional notions of leadership? So there are a couple of ways, and the meta-leadership is, we think, a very broad and holistic, hence the meta-prefix, much like a, a meta-researcher will look, what, look at 20 studies of heart disease and see what are the common threads that go across them. Meta-leaders look very broadly and try and see the larger picture and understand how that system is working and where, where are the leverage points, where are the linkages. And so it's a framework, it's not a theory, and it, it allows the practitioner, to incorporate a lot of their experience, things they've learned, whether it's with us or with others, uh, into a, an organizing framework. And it has three dimensions. The first is the person. Who are you as an individual? What's your educational background? What experience do you have? Your expertise? Uh, what are your cognitive biases? Even sometimes you go to your, your family structure and birth order. <clears throat> Who are you? And what do you bring to the table? The second dimension is the situation. Because if you're leading, you're leading in a context. And is, are you in a, you know, corporation in a turnaround setting? That could be your crisis. Uh, are you leading in the street after a bombing? That could be your crisis. But understanding what's really happening and, there, and then what needs to be done about it. And the third dimension, which relates directly to the swarm leadership, is connectivity. To what organizations, other individuals, do you need to be linked and in what ways to create collective action? And in most of about 85% of the leadership literature uh, looks at leading down in a hierarchy. So you get the boss, the team that reports to you, and that's where most of it focuses. And within connectivity, yes, down is one direction that's very important. But what about leading up to your boss or to your board or to your elected official? That's a relationship where leadership comes into play, too. And leading across within the various silos of your organization. You're under a common governance structure, but there are reward and recognition systems, there are boundaries that are drawn that can keep people divided. <clears throat> How do you lead across those silos? And then beyond, which is the other organizations outside of your four walls, so outside of that governance structure. Your collaborators, it could be the general public, it could be the public-private interaction. But how do you think about that holistically and where things are going to go? And so we think a, a broader, we think more nuanced look uh, it doesn't invalidate a lot of other leadership work, but it incorporates it in a way that gives it uh, more meaning and more usefulness. You know what I really like about how you speak about all of this really is I'm thinking about the whole gamut of leadership theory, leadership books. It, it, it spreads across so many different areas. You know, you think about, you talked about in, in this framework here, the situation of context. Well, immediately I thought of situational leadership, you know, by, um, you know, there's situation leadership, there is servant leadership, there's so many different ways of thinking about it. And what you're doing is you're fusing or you're, you're threading these together to make, it makes perfect sense the way that you talk about this. And then when you're talking about Leading up, yes, we're all taught about leading down, 
leading up and then that piece about leading across. And I, I'm having flashbacks to a moment when I had a 360 survey when I was a leader in my organization and a huge, my Jahari window opened when I found out that my colleagues didn't know necessarily what I was doing all the time. And it was such an eye opener, which completely reinforces what you're talking about. It's just so imperative that there's that connectivity and that communication across an organization. So that makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, it's only born out of watching what works and what doesn't as we've seen people succeed or fail. And you're right. I mean, people have blind spots and this framework helps you see those and um, yeah, situational leadership is important. As a philosophy, I actually use servant leadership, but I use it within the better leadership framework. So mm-hmm. it is a good way to organize what, what, you, what you can bring to the table and what you can deploy. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think embedded in all that, too, is there's that whole concept. I, I talk about transformational leadership on my show. Obviously, that's the name of my show. And a big piece of that is you really need to walk the talk. You know, Guzes and Posner's calls it model the way is one of the five exemplary dimensions of leadership. And one of the key things that we have to do is model the way. When we think about transformational leadership, one of the key things is you have to walk the talk and do the right thing. And it sounds to me, that's also embedded in everything that you're talking about here with meta leadership and even swarm leadership. Absolutely. And I think that one of the interesting exercises we do with our public health students, so they're relatively young in their careers and they come in for a one-week intensive leadership course. We do the meta leadership framework. But on the first morning, everyone is secretly assigned two people to watch. And they know Hmm. they're being watched by two people. And that they, you know, it's, it's kept secret. And it makes people really uncomfortable at first. And then by about the end of the first day, they get it. We do this because when you're a leader, you're always being watched. And it's not just when you stand up in front of the room to make your presentation. It's who you have lunch with. It's what jokes you tell. It's the way you carry yourself both on and, on and off the, the office campus. That you are always being watched for cues. And you're right. It's model away. It is, you are the role model. And so you have to be very conscious of it. It's one of the, uh, the, you call it the bird, you call it the opportunity of leadership, that you are that person people look to, and they are very sensitive to the cues you give off, both verbal and nonverbal. And so you have to be aware of it. And the, uh, having students go through this for a week is really eye-opening for them. At the end of the week, they get feedback, just like you do with your 360, where these two people tell them what they, what they saw and what their reaction to it was. And it's, uh, getting that kind of feedback is, is Unfortunately, more more rare than it should be, uh, but it's really valuable when it's done well. Oh, wow! What what an eye opener for yourself. There's the the known knowns, the unknowns, all that good stuff. And you're right. I'm just imagining myself being in a leadership program and knowing that two people are watching me. And and, and actually, I mean. Of course, we talk about that all the time. We're in a fishbowl. Doesn't matter. People are always watching you, evaluating you, judging you, making assumptions about you, and then so many other different things. So what an eye opener that is. You know, this leads me into another topic. And and what we'll do is we're at a commercial break now. And when we come back, let's talk more about influence because we all have it in in one way or another, and you have a really neat take on it in terms of influencing authority. So what we'll do now for everyone out there, stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. In the meantime, check out my website. That's transformationalenergyleadership.com, and we will see you back here in just a couple minutes.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Fridays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Tune in to Lead Up for Women. Speak up to lead up as we celebrate the influence of women in business and beyond. Your hosts, Colleen Biggs and Dee Daniels, speak with guests who have stories to share, have faced adversity, and have become success stories in business, in their communities, and in personal accomplishments. Join the strong and the brilliant ones and understand that the world is ready for you to be at your best. Lead Up for Women is heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Eric Minolti, the co-author of You're It. Crisis, Change, and How to Lead When It Matters Most. He is also the Associate Director for the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. And before the break, Eric and I were talking about the genesis of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, which came out of 9-11, as we learned, and also the concepts of swarm leadership and meta-leadership. And Eric, before break, I queued us up to be talking about influence in this section. And we know one of the key components of leadership is the ability to influence others. So talk about how a person can influence beyond their authority. Well, I think that the place to start is to realize that everyone's authority is limited. When you have a, you're in a job, you're given a, let's call it a box of authority. There's certain amounts of money you can spend, certain people you can hire or fire. The organization has said, here's your, here's your span of what you can do and what you control. And it's always limited. Even the CEO is limited by the board and so on. Your influence is infinitely expandable. It is not limited by what the organization gives to you. It's what you, you build for yourself, and you can build it over your entire career. So when you leave that one box of authority behind to get to your next job, your influence goes with you. And I know, Matthew, you're a fan of Warren Bennis, and one of the things that Warren said that's uh, <laughs> quite well known is, you want to be a better leader? Be a better person. And the key to influence is just as simple as and as complex as being a good person. So it starts with integrity. 
can people count on you to say what you mean and mean what you say, to keep your word, to do the right thing? When you have integrity, people know they can count on you. They're more open to being influenced by you. Do you have credibility? Are you actually competent at what you're trying to influence? Or are you just blowing hot air? Uh, when you have credibility as someone who, who can get a job done or has a certain body of knowledge, again, they're more open to being influenced by you because they'll learn from you and you'll have something smart to say. Are you reliable? Can they count on you? Again, when people come to you for, for advice or they're looking to bring you onto a team, they want to know that you're someone who's going to show up, bring your, your energy, your intelligence, your expertise, and put it toward the common good. And then I think the most overlooked thing in terms of influence is using your two ears. People who are good listeners tend to have great influence because they hear what people actually are asking for or looking for or needing. So being someone who asks questions, who really listens, who tunes into what people are needing, and again, the only evidence of leadership is that people follow you. And if they're going to follow you, they have their reason why. And being very attuned to what's going on around you and listening, both to the, you know, the, the verbal as well as the nonverbal cues you're getting from people as to what they're looking for, what do they need, what do they want. When you're good at that, that's when people are being open to being influenced. They want to hear what you have to say. They want to have you contribute to their efforts. And that's what I find to be the foundation of great influence. I really like how you phrase that. Use your two ears. And you're right. I believe that's one of the first, one of the big things that's overlooked. And as I'm thinking about it, when you, when you want, need to make that practical, because it's not always the first thing that a lot of people do, is you can do this by acknowledging, acknowledging that someone, focus on them, acknowledge them, paraphrase back what you're hearing to make sure you're getting, getting it, and also empathizing. There's that, and that ties back to what you talked about earlier in our last segment, and that having that emotional intelligence is really key to, to being a good leader. And so everything that you said there, that's, and the fact that you said it's expandable, infinitely expandable. And I think, I think, you know, some of my success in the past in an organization was doing what you just said is when you're in that time and in that moment and you're focused on, and it doesn't matter what the, that person's role is in the organization, but you're focused and you give them your time. It just speaks volumes about how you value that person. Absolutely. And when you're you're giving off that signal of respect and valuing that person and being as concerned about what they're saying and what what you're hearing as opposed to getting ready for your, what are the perfect words of wisdom you're going to deliver, um, it it, it does. It it puts you in a very different position and it puts you in one where uh, you will have great influence with people who will want to come to you. They'll want to hear what you have to say, but that's only because they know you're listening to what they have to say. Absolutely. And in that moment, I think there's this pressure for some some people to think that they have to have an answer right then and there. And that's not necessarily the case. It's to say, you know, Eric, I heard what you're saying. Give me some time to think about this. I'll come back to you. I want to give this some real thought. And people respect that, too. You don't always have to have the answers right then and there, you know? <laughs> so... No, you're right. You're not, you're not a vending machine. They put the quarter in and they get the, uh, <laughs> the, the wise saying at the bottom. Exactly. You're not a vending machine. You know, one of the things I talk about I, on my show, I talk about energy. I really believe that we all have a, a composite or, or a mix of energy. We've got 
really positive growth oriented energy and then we've there's also some negative energy and we all have it and it just depends how you show up and what's the mix of when you show up in the situation and I just want to get your thoughts you know as you think about all the interviews you've done all the crises that you've seen the leaders that you've engaged with what have you picked up in terms of energy well that's a really interesting question and I want to give credit here to my co-author Joe Henderson who has said that one of the great leader's greatest challenges in jobs is to get as much energy as possible on the table. So when people come in, they can give you the minimal amount of energy to get by so they don't get fired or they, you know, they're minimally competent, or they can contribute a lot. And the energy can build and grow as people get engaged and, and bounce off each other and, and really get into the work. And I think one of the ways you do that is by focusing on problem solving. And when people are framed, what's in front of them is framed as a problem to solve that becomes a challenge, it becomes engaging, it becomes intriguing, because some people in leadership positions, and I want to make that distinction because I don't think everyone in a leadership position is actually a leader, um, but they put their energy toward themselves and their career. They want to get ahead, and their focus is, is inward. And that just, I find, sucks energy out of the team, it sucks it out of the organization. Mm-hmm. Or there's a lot of energy spent on silo battles of mine versus yours and who's got the biggest budget or the most people or the best office space. That also consumes a lot of energy to put to different places, but, but better places. When you are looking at that larger mission, when you've got a problem to solve for your customer, for your community, the energy actually builds upon itself because people get involved and people get a lot, a lot of psychological satisfaction from that ability to contribute to a solution. So when you are keeping people focused on, okay, what's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the challenge in front of us? You, you build the energy, and as you said, you've got to show up with energy. You can't show up all lackadaisical and, and, uh, and cynical and just close your door. You've got to be generating energy, and that energy will build upon itself. Mm-hmm. Which leaks, it links nicely back to your meta-leadership concept. And I was also reflecting on, I had a guest several weeks ago, and she said, there's also another powerful energy, and that's quiet energy. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, when you just, you, and it goes to what you were just saying earlier, you use those two ears you have when you're quiet. It's amazing the things that you pick up in those moments and stop intruding, like you said, when you're when you're not doing the inward focus or the siloed focus, but you're that that big picture focus is amazing what you can do there. So that makes makes a lot of sense there. You know, let's talk about because your book is about crisis, and I I just I can't wait to hear what you're going to talk about here. And that is when we think about organizational disasters, what are ways that organizations can prepare? So so three come to mind. The first is attending to your culture. If you've got a culture where people do the right thing, where they're comfortable telling truth to power, you're actually going to avoid a number of organizational crises. Because those little problems that become emergencies that eventually become crises get solved much earlier. And so uh, I recently had a chat with Patty McCord, who used to be at Netflix, with a great book out called Powerful. And she talked about the the radical candor in that culture. Um, So that people were communicating. It's a little tough for some people to take, but it is everyone knows where everyone else is, what's going on, and you find out about problems fast. So having a culture of people are focused on doing the right thing where there's a high signal-to-noise ratio 
up and down the organization, gives you a culture where you're going to avoid something becoming a crisis because you'll take care of it sooner. The second one is to actually prepare. You need to have a crisis management team that's identified in advance with alternates in case someone's not available and take it seriously. So you need to know who's going to respond. Now, obviously, it'll vary depending on the crisis, but if you have a, a broad team that you may convene a subset of, given whether it's an HR crisis or a financial crisis, but take it seriously because knowing who you're going to work with and how you're going to work helps you get into a battle rhythm which keeps you ahead of the crisis and not getting caught behind. And one of the things we see frequently is that organizations that don't respond well initially can create a second crisis, which is a perceived lack of indifferent, uh, lack of caring in some cases, lack of responsiveness. You've got to stay ahead. That's be taken seriously. And in any crisis, you're going to have to pivot. Pivot from routine to crisis mode. Now, pivot is a very specific motion. You think of basketball. The NBA finals are going on right now. And the, when you pivot, you plant one foot and you move the other. It's a moment of pausing forward moment. You're looking around to see what's happening, what's the environment like before you make a choice whether you're going to shoot the ball or pass the ball. That leg you plant, to my mind, in most crises, it's got to be around values and principles. Hmm. That's going to keep you rooted as you decide which, which movements you're going to make. So if your values, your core values, your operating principles say, we will not act except in the best interest of our customer. That guides you as the choices you're going to make. If you actually believe and do that and live into our people are our first priority, that helps you make your decisions and take action. So having, knowing what you're going to keep solid as you move helps you navigate the chaos of a crisis and actually create some islands of calm, as it were, because people are certain about, okay, I know that if, I'm going to, if I act on behalf of our people, the organization's going to back me up. That makes you much more confident in, t- in taking action. So attend to your culture, prepare and take it seriously, and know that you're going to have to pivot and understand what you're going to keep solid as well as what you're going to move. Wow. I like all, everything that you just said. And, and when you were th- talking about culture, uh, one, of, one of my guests on a couple of weeks or uh, a while back, she said, leaders are the arbiters of culture. And that was the first thing that you talked about there. It makes perfect sense. And when you were talking about the pivot point, I really liked how you t- how you frame that that the leg that you have grounded it's in your values it's in your principles and I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago his name is John Blueberg and he said when we think about integrity and that links to your values and everything when you you have to be careful when you start to drift and that's when you drift that's when things get in trouble and that's what you just said there's when you're not firmly planted decisions and bad choices can creep into the equation so I, I really like what you were just saying. You know, John, you know, Eric, where we are right now, we're at another commercial break. And so when we come back, let's continue this conversation about how to lead through times of crisis. So for everyone out there, stay tuned. And we'll be back here on the other side in a couple of minutes. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Tune in for 5 Blossom Radio. Each week, host Denise Richard will discuss common interests in the fields of art, health, and spirituality. The series is arranged into three parts, focusing on five Blossom Gatherings, the Four Voices Program, and Fires of Compassion. 
Every program is available on demand. So if you miss any part of the series live, be sure to catch up. Five Blossom Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you where you want to be right now? We live our lives sometimes looking at others and thinking, the grass is always greener on their side. Not realizing that we have the power within us to pursue our dreams. It begins with a head start in the right direction. And that head start is with host Carla D. Walker and From the Inside Out. Believe in your abilities and take action. Listen live every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. And here we are. Today, my guest is Eric McNulty, and we've been talking about leadership during times of crisis. And just before the break, we were talking about the concepts of influence and energy, and then we delved into how organizations can prepare for inevitable disasters. It, it, it just will happen. And so, you know, Eric, communication is a critical skill for all leaders in every organization, I think without a doubt. And one of the pillars of leadership that emerged from my research was about communicating with action. And so from your perspective, talk about how you see communication fitting into all of this. Well, you're right, Matthew. Communication is absolutely essential. If there's one skill I would say leaders cannot do without, it's the ability to communicate. Communicating well makes up for lots of other deficiencies. You need to be good, good at things, but if you communicate well, you will draw the expertise in others, you'll rally people, and you will get them to know what, what's going on and where you need them to go. So absent that, I don't care what, how brilliant you are with finance or uh, with product development, if you can't communicate, you will not do, do well. And I think it's important that the communication be two-way. And I know one of the stories in, in, in the book that I like quite a bit is of Harriet Green, who was, when she was the incoming CEO of a company called Premier Farnell in the U.K., her first day on the job, she sent an email to everybody in the company and with her picture so they could see who she was. She was a global company with a message saying, I'm here. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it was a turnaround situation. So I'm looking forward to working with you, and I want to hear what you have to say about where we need to go. And she put it in her personal email. And first day, she got you know one or two emails, which she answered, and then began to get three or four or five. And once it quickly got around the world that we have a new CEO who actually reads the email and answers it, 
she began to get lots of ideas, lots of information, and got to know the company really, really quickly. Now, it got to the point where the volume was she couldn't answer all of them, but very quickly opened up that communication channel. So she was not someone to be feared coming in from the outside as the new CEO, but someone who wanted to work with the organization, and it created a very productive atmosphere really, really quickly. And there's a great example of how no matter the size of the organization, it's that personal touch. And like you, you were just saying, you know, that description was this great. It, it Pretty soon it felt like a like wildfire and it gets to the organization because people know that she does actually read and respond. That means a lot. And I was thinking also about, you know, this whole concept of communication during crisis. When I was doing my dissertation and I was interviewing chancellors and presidents of universities here in the U.S., and one of my participants who was in my study, she she came on campus, and the next day there was a murder on campus. I mean, talk about disaster, you know, her first day. And she had very personal ways of how she communicated and kept connected with the campus and the students and uh, all the audiences, if you will, for lack of a better word. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, leaders, communication is front and center. You've got to have it. And, boy, people will notice it when you don't, for sure. Absolutely. And knowing when to be there in person versus when you can do something in a more of a broadcast mode, really, really critical. Good leaders in crisis always think about where am I physically and where do I need to be uh, to get the right view of things, to, to connect with the right audiences, to get the message across. Uh, it's really, really critical. Mm. And that's a, a great way to frame up my next question for you because we're all in it. And if we aren't, were impacted by it in one way or another. And that's the, the whole thing about social media. And, you know, when, based off of what you just said, should a company or its executives refrain from social media when a catastrophe strikes or should they embrace it? I hate to say it depends, but it depends. And it <laughs> depends right. on how active you are before the crisis. Mm-hmm. So if you're a company, and particularly if you're a CEO who is active in social media on a daily basis, and there are a number of people out there who are, you know, always tweeting and posting. And if that's your daily modus operandi, when the crisis hits, you need to stay engaged because people will expect you to be there. And if you're not there, you'll, you'll create a void. Now, if you've got a CEO that nobody really knows and is not normally on social media, this is not the time for him or her to, to discover, discover Twitter. Um, now, you, as a company, you need to engage at least at a level to say, we know something has happened. We are responding. Here's what we're doing about it. Again, depending on the crisis, you may not be able to give a lot of details, but you can, just as you would with the traditional media, say, we know there's been an explosion here. We have deployed a team to investigate, and we are cooperating with authorities. Boom. You have created a presence. You've put something out there, and that may be all you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you're a company that is... is has a regular, you're very active all the time, you're going to have to put something out there or people will notice that you're gone and they're going to think you're hiding. So, and if you've got a, if you're active, you should have people you trust to be able to get that message right and do, and do it for you and, and push them out there because it's like a, you say, it's, it's all around us now. It's a constant stream. And if you're not prepared to swim in the stream, you're going to drown. So you've got to be thinking about what's my pace, what's the right amount to be in there, uh, to get to help shape the narrative and get our story out, uh, but don't look silly and don't look absent. I like that, and you're right. 
it all depends. And it, I, it really harkens back to what you were talking about with the swarm concept, too, when you've got a team around you and trust is at the foundation that that should also help with the communication and the, you know, the connection to all your constituents out there. So that makes makes good sense. You know, you've got lots of experience in this crisis world, if you will. And I'm curious, what crises have you been privy to? And what what did you learn from the boots on the ground experience? Well, there's lots of stories in the book, but I'll give you a couple. Um, That, first of all, being on the ground, there's no substitute for it. So as, and I'm a late in life academic, my early career was in communications in the private sector. Um, But actually being on the ground, and for example, I was down in the Gulf during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, and being with the Coast Guard and flying over that spill, being in the operations center and seeing what was actually happening, there's no way you can duplicate that experience from afar. Uh, when I was, after Superstorm Sandy, I was down in New York and New Jersey with the FEMA innovation team. And again, being with them as they were in the field, solving problems, um, hearing what they were going through, it really gives you perspective on what are the pressures, what are the, what are the challenges you're going to face, what are the decisions you're going to have to make. Um, you know, little things like our to just remember to give people rest. I mean, they go, have you thought about the rhythm of how you're going to work with people and what are the challenges to that? Um, Boston Marathon bombing response was another one. It was, I was here. I live just off the route of the Boston Marathon, so I was home that day. I got the alert on my, on my tablet, um, and one of my colleagues was uh, down near the finish line. We immediately began triaging news because I was getting pinged from, from our alumni and friends of the program from around the world. Hey, what's going on? I heard what's happening. Uh, and I began triaging between uh, the traditional media, social media, and trying to get people on the phone or texting that I knew to try working like a journalist. Okay, we've heard this. We can't confirm it. Okay, I can confirm that. And trying to piece together the event. And um, so you really, you can't duplicate that. And, and we always go in as researchers. We're never trying to look and see is, you know, Sally a great leader or is Sally a terrible leader. It's looking for those general principles. And so we are sympathetic outsiders. And we get that perspective because uh, often we're shadowing one of our alumni who tend to be in senior roles in these, uh, responding to these events. So we really do get to be up close and personal with it. And they let us be there because, again, we're not going to judge them, uh, nor are we there to consult them, but we're there to, to gather knowledge and, and share back uh, some principles and tools that they will find useful and that we can then share. They, many like to pay it forward so we can share it with other people who will face similar events in the future. Such a nice amalgamation of experiences that you're, you, you create into actionable, practical approaches that you can carry forward to other organizations and individuals you work with. I, I have to ask you, sometimes we, our greatest lessons are from mistakes that are made during times of crisis. And as you think about the individuals, and you, don't, of course, don't name names or organizations, but is there something that you've seen that you'd say, boy, this is something you should not do? when you're in a crisis? Uh, yes, and I think that um, there are a number. One is, if you are that person who, who is leading, don't seal yourself off. You've got to mm. be present. Uh, you've got to be visible. You've got to, people have to know that you, you are there. Um, and so there can sometimes be a bunker mentality of just you know, hunker down in a war room someplace and, and uh, stay on top of things. So you have to be present. You've also got to realize your limitations. 
none of us can physically go on forever. So if you're in a long duration event, like Deepwater Horizon, it was 73 or 74 days. You've got to be able to have confidence in the people around you so you can hand things off and go get some rest. And you can make sure they get rest as well. Because if they don't, people will start making bad decisions, they will get irritable, but the, the team breaks down. So you've got to really acknowledge your limitations and be a bit vulnerable. It's just who we are as human beings. None of us are superheroes, no matter how many Marvel movies you go watch. Um, and the third one I would say is you've got to be prepared to make decisions. So if in a crisis, you can't stop and think, you know, oh, let me get 14 more pieces of analysis around that. You've got to understand when you know enough to make a decision. And again, it helps being rooted in your values and your principles so you can have a higher degree of confidence than if you're just flailing around. So the failure to make a decision is one of these that will cripple a response effort. Not seeing the leader certainly will do that. And, and people who are worn out and, and letting people get worn out will only degrade your performance. So those are three that come to mind of things, things to avoid. Mm-hmm. Be present, be present, realize your limitations, and also be prepared to make decisions. Yeah. Key fun. Yes, excellent. Good points for all of us to be thinking about. So now as we go into our final break, and, and when you come back, I'm going to ask you, Eric, to step back and, and take everything that we've talked about and, and put this into focus for us so that we can start taking action as soon as we're done with the show today. So for everyone out there listening, we're going into break, and we'll have you right back here on the other side in a couple of minutes. us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Tune in to The James Dentley Show and learn strategies for success in business and in life. Dr. James Dentley is a proven success coach who knows how to convert good into great. You'll find out from the achievers and leaders how they got to be the success stories that they are. And Dr. Dentley and his guests will give you the tools you need to follow in their footsteps. It's time to become the best version of you. Listen to The James Dentley Show, Fridays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on Voice America Empowerment. If you are looking to deepen your understanding of karma, the law of attraction, metaphysics, mindfulness, and intuition, be sure to tune in each week for You, the Universe, the Holistic Mind with host Katherine Potter. Catherine and her insightful guests will show how everything interconnects, explaining concepts and modalities that connect the mind and body. It's a refreshing look at the universe and the laws that govern it. Listen every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Life can be confusing at times. There can be uncertainty, disappointment, and an inability to clearly see where you're headed. But it doesn't have to be this way at all if you understand how to take the next step in your life. Tune in to Living the Miracle with your hosts, Michael and Raphael Tamora. We'll help you to find the deeper meaning that awaits you in your life, have certainty in yourself, and learn to be clairvoyant. Listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. 
To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, welcome back to the final segment of today's show. And as if you've been listening, I've been talking with my guest, Eric McNulty, about crisis and leadership. And in fact, he's got a co-authored book coming out. It's called You're It, Crisis Change and How to Lead When It Matters Most. And it's soon to be released here in June. And so, Eric, before the break, I was queuing everyone up, queuing you up, really, to help us bring everything into focus about what we've been talking about over the course of the past hour. And so... You think about this, how would you boil this down into some actionable things that we can do when we think think about leadership in crisis? Well, the first thing I would do, and this is going to sound wonky and old-fashioned, but I I always advise people to start keeping a leadership journal. In the book, at the end of each chapter, we have a couple of journaling questions to try and stimulate thought. But it really is about getting people to reflect. Remember, that first dimension of meta leadership is the person and getting to know yourself and who you are and when you feel strong or when you feel vulnerable or what went well and what didn't. Really strong leaders have developed an ability to reflect. So they're always getting better, always learning about themselves. If you can get in that habit, it doesn't have to be taking an hour a day. It takes five minutes to scratch down some thoughts so you capture them so you don't forget them. So a journal is the first piece. The second is to practice. Now, if you think back over everything we've talked about for the last hour, pretty much everything I have said is a component of good everyday leadership. Emotional intelligence, ability to communicate, make decisions, work well with people, all of those things. You can practice these skills every single day. What we have found is that crisis leadership is not a separate skill set. It's your strong everyday skills taken to a different level. With a lot more pressure, the stakes are higher, but you're able to step up and, and perform at a higher level. So you can practice this every single day. And the third one I would say is, is to stretch. Great leaders we have found ask a lot of questions. They're very curious about the world around them. And so find a way, to, whether it's through travel, through it's an assignment at work, to stretch yourself and keep learning, to stimulate the, what Carol Dweck calls the growth mindset that you are always trying to learn, get, get wiser about the world around you and the people with whom you work. And if you're that curious person who is open to new ideas, open to new experiences, you have a richer understanding of yourself and people, and that really is at the core of being able to lead well in the midst of a crisis. Genuine curiosity, and I am a Carol Dweck fan for sure. Growth mindset, good stuff. Her work is I terrific. Am- Oh, it's a, yes, and for the listening audience, if you haven't read her book, it's well worth the read, Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck, and I know she's had some subsequent publications come out. Pick any one of them up, you'll you'll learn something. You know, I was also thinking about when you were talking about keeping that leadership journal, reflection is such a huge piece, and yes, you just reinforce things that I've been talking about, or my guests have been talking about over the course of all these shows, is that we need to take time and really Think about what what happened, what worked, what did you learn from that experience? If you had to do it over, what would you change about it? And so, so important. And I agree with you practicing all the things that we talked about. You gave us some tools. We talked about 
all those things when it comes to emotional connecting and communication and things. I want to ask you, I didn't hear you say this, and I'm curious, what about getting feedback? Yes, feedback is very important, absolutely. And that is, you know, part of what you're doing when you're journaling is giving yourself feedback. And hopefully when you're practicing every day, if you're attuned to um, what people are doing, uh, how they're responding to you, that's also helping you get better. But it is, you're right, it's very important to have people who will speak honestly to you about what's happening, you know, what's, what's going on, what's going well, and what's not. Um, and those can be, sometimes you've got a very trusted subordinate who can come in and say, you know, boss, you handled that really well, or you know what, you missed that people are really angry about such and such. Um, that is, so that person is good. It could be a peer. It could, you find people who will actually give you, will talk to you about this and say, you know, you are, if you, when you have a growth mindset, when people understand you're open to growing and learning, they're more open to doing that. And, you know, feedback is so important. It's, it's an under, underrated skill to be able to do it well. Uh, and it's a really underrated skill to be able to take it well because, you know, you've been through a 360 as have I. When you get that back, there's always some surprises in there. You're like, wait, I didn't realize I was like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how people perceive you always differs from how you perceive yourself. So, yes, the more feedback you can get, the better. Yeah. Surround yourself with people that you trust, which is a key element that you talked about earlier. And also, when when working on building skills, it's good to get feedback from people that you respect, who would you, I don't know if you want to call them masters, but who have really skilled up in something that you don't have that skill, seek out their feedback knowing that you'll get some good guidance along the way. I cannot thank you enough, Eric, for your time today, sharing your expertise and the, the, the sage wisdom in terms of your experiences, what you've observed in this world, in this world of crisis, if you will, of this, I want to call this the world of research that you do, really. And so I can't thank you enough. And Eric, if guests want to get a hold of you after the show, what would be the best way for them to connect? Uh, if they want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Richard Earth. Or they can email me at emcnulty at hsph.harvard.edu. I'm happy to hear from your listeners. Fantastic. And okay, I have to ask you this. I like to ask a lot of my guests who are out there in the world learning and, and making an impact. So for you, what are you doing right now to continue to develop yourself? What are you reading? What are you exploring? So I'm, I'm reading two very different books right now. Um, one is, is by a friend, and it's very professionally focused. It's called How We Win, uh, and it's looking at combating violent extremism. The author is Farah Pandif, and used to work for the State Department and lectures in our program. Um, so that's sort of a serious book. And then this time of year, I always reread uh, Thoreau's Walden. Uh, I'm, I'm big on nature, being on spending time outside, and I find that puts me in a contemplative space, and as the weather's getting better here in the Boston area, uh, it puts me in the right frame of mind to, to relax and unplug a little bit. And I will this weekend be walking on the beach looking for those birds and seeing where that swarm leadership emerges. <laughs> I love it. Yes, and it's so important to step away, go into a world where we, where we can appreciate and disconnect and, and then connect right back in. Eric, thank you very, very much for being here with me today. And for all my guests out there, if you've got a topic you would like to have covered or a guest that you think would be great and bring some real texture and dimension to our conversations, feel free email me at mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. And for 
Until we speak again, I encourage all of you to harness your energy, make it positive, and lead that transformation. So until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to Transformational Energy Leadership. Please join Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey again for another edition next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.